Romans chapter five, uh, 10 verses 4 and 5 is indeed the passage uh, we are considering together. Romans chapter 10. Having looked at verses 14 and 15 last time, so we uh, go backwards now and look at verses 4 and 5. I'll read verses 1 through 5, but I will preach verses 4 and 5. Hear God's word. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word as ever. And we ask you that uh, you might, through the preaching, open it up to uh, the hearing of faith. And that it might be like a word which was planted, which was sown and took root in the heart and bore much fruit. Even as you tell us in the parable of the sower. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I almost never do this, but I would say, and I am doing this now, there are times when you must go back before you can go forward. At least uh, saying something like that makes sense to me. And at any rate, I don't think we're in any rush to complete Romans until we fully grasped its message. And so, in the course of my study... Uh, which much of it has coincided with what we are considering in Romans 10, though not necessarily as I was reading commentaries. I hope to make that clear in a moment what I mean by that. But in the course of my study, I had such a realization, the, 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 the need to go back. Why? Because, well, we hadn't fully uh, covered the ground. And I'm not saying you have to say everything about every text, but sometimes there are important key thoughts uh, that you realize you never covered. And that became clear to me in, in the reading of the marrow of modern divinity. So I've entitled the sermon, A Marrow of Modern Divinity. That is, I'm basing the sermon largely on what I've read here, especially in Thomas Boston's notes. Uh, or I would, as a subtitle, call this a primer on covenant theology, especially uh, concerning chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is, which is of the law, quoting then the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. That is a verse uh, which, uh, the importance of which I, I don't think I fully was able to grasp when I preached it. And yet in my study of covenant theology, it coming up, kept coming up again and again, especially in the marrow. Well, ever since that sermon, uh, I've had two... Uh, And if you remember, I I believe I preached verses 4 through 8 together. Ever since that sermon, I've had two nagging 
or lingering thoughts about that passage, along with verse four. So verses four and five together, which until I read Boston, I've not felt I, I, I fully grasped or was able adequately to expound myself. But having read his notes. I feel that things have become clearer to me and I hope to you as well. Those two thoughts were these, these lingering thoughts of things that were unresolved and and not adequately expounded. The first was simply the thought that verse 4 was never adequately expounded in its proper context. That is the sense in which Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. I had the sense that was a very important verse. Perhaps I was passing over too quickly. Perhaps I missed its context. That led to the second nagging thought. And that is that two things can be true at the same time. And, uh, and let me explain to you what I mean. I, I think thus far, I've only stressed one of two truths, and it's the second truth I want to expound this morning. I have repeatedly stated one truth only, and that is that the free offer of the gospel, the righteousness of faith that Paul speaks of in verses 6 uh, up to where we are currently, was stated clearly and repeatedly in the Old Testament, the gospel way of salvation was found not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, which is why Paul, in expounding the gospel, nearly always cites the Old Testament. The way of salvation as a way of faith is the way of salvation you will find in the Old Testament. Justification by faith alone. It was therefore nothing new he was preaching. He wanted to make that clear to Jews, but we need to be clear about this as well. It's the same way of salvation you will find in the Old Testament. He wasn't preaching something new. He was preaching something very old. To preach this message placed the Apostle Paul in the company of the prophets of the Old Covenant. And we call that covenant the covenant of grace. It was the old covenant was a gracious dispensation whereby God justifies the sinner freely by his grace. When that sinner has faith, the just shall live by faith. Who said that? It wasn't just Paul. It was the prophet. The prophet Hosea. That is the old way. Paul tells us in Galatians three or Romans chapter four that God justified Abraham. And David after him and all the saints of the old covenant, they were all justified, not by their obedience to the law, but by their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first truth. But remember, I'm saying two things can be true at the same time. And here is where the nagging thought comes in. A a thought I confess, you notice, by the way, Paul in 10.5 is quoting Leviticus 18.5. And so this thought has been nagging at me for a while. In fact, I began a sermon I never preached on Leviticus 18.5 when I was preaching Leviticus. Well, this has been brewing for a while. Finally, the sermon is, uh, is complete. The thought that the Apostle Paul, in explaining the works principle, what he calls the righteousness of the law, whenever he does that, he also quotes the Old Testament. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying that when the Apostle Paul describes the gospel way of salvation, what he calls the righteousness of faith, he quotes the Old Testament. But when he quotes the works principle, do this and lives or stated negatively, the soul that sins shall die. Whenever he quotes that or whenever he states that, he also quotes the Old Testament. And I fear that in stressing the gospel side of things, 
I've left this great uh, question unanswered. Why does the Apostle Paul uh, speak of the righteousness of the law, which he says is not the way of salvation, it's the false way that the Jews were seeking. Why does he state that in terms of, uh, if I could put it this way, and I think it's fair, in terms of the preaching of Moses to Israel? When Mo- I'm going to say this later, I'll say it now. When Moses preached to Israel at Sinai, he was preaching to them the righteousness of the law, which says, do this and live. And so whenever Paul is elucidating that principle of works. He quotes Moses. Isn't that interesting? He always does that. He he does it in Galatians chapter 3. Not only in Romans chapter 10 verse 5 where he quotes Leviticus 18.5. But in Galatians chapter 3 he talks about. Well, the law is not of faith. Whoever is under the law is under a curse. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26. Well, Moses wasn't standing on Sinai anymore, but he was still preaching in Deuteronomy to the Israel. And he was stating the same principle. The principle of works. The man man who does them, uh, the things of the law will live by them. The man who does not is under an awful and a woeful curse. So there's great tension that's found here in these two ideas. The fact that both principles can be supported from the Old Testament and that they're opposing principles. The promise was made to Abraham. The gospel promise was made to Abraham. The law was given by Moses at Sinai. The the tension is so great that Paul is forced to ask in Galatians chapter 3, is the law then contrary or against the promise? Or verse 19, what purpose does the law serve? Since it's clear that the law is a statement of a contrary principle to that of the promise which was given to Abraham all these years later through Moses, God stated a different principle, that of works. What was the purpose of this addition? Seeing that he had already stated the promise to Abraham, a promise of grace, this addition so many years later. That's the question for us to resolve. We have the principle of grace, the principle of works in the Old Testament. And that is a question in answering that will lead us back to the original one. And that is, namely, in what sense is Christ the end of the law for righteousness? And having stated that, he says the righteousness of the law says. You see how those two verses sit together. Here's a sermon on covenant theology. I remember in reading uh, Hugh Martin, and I, I quoted this a few times throughout Hebrews, that Hugh Martin in his book, The Atonement, talks about the old preaching was based upon large views of the covenant. And because the preachers and the people had a large view of the covenant, they were capable of listening to covenantal or doctrinal or rich theological sermons, which people are not capable of doing today. I'm not saying this congregation isn't capable of, but the majority of congregations are not. Why? Because they have small views of the covenant, or perhaps they have no view of the covenant. We need, from time to time, to have sermons on the covenants. Now, I have expressed two ways of righteousness repeatedly. That's how Paul puts it. But in describing these two ways, that is the way of the law or the way of faith, the way which says do this and live or the way which says believe on Christ and be saved and live. In describing these two ways or two principles, what stands behind them, I have realized this is the realization of my study that I'm sharing with you. What supports the notion 
of the two ways of righteousness, both which are found in the Old Covenant, is the whole idea of covenant theology. Namely, that God in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, has made two covenants with man. He has made a covenant of works, and he has made a covenant of grace. And there is now no question in my mind, but that in expressing things as he does in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, contrasting the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith, both times quoting the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul is referring to these two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of of grace. And then going back to verse 4, when the apostle says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, what he is actually saying is that Christ came under the covenant of works and he fulfilled it in order to bring about the covenant of grace. I don't think I said as much when I preached it before, and so let me say it now. Well, here's where we get into the marrow of modern divinity. Edward Fisher, uh, in the voice of Evangelista, says the Ten Commandments were, to, were delivered unto them, that is, unto Israel, as the covenant of works. Quoting another divine, Paulinus, who says, God made this covenant in the beginning with the first man, Adam. He made the covenant of works with Adam. And then the same covenant God did repeat and make again by Moses with the people of Israel at Sinai. He published unto them the covenant of works to use the language of Romans chapter 10, verse five. The righteousness of the law is stated explicitly by Moses. It is preached to Israel in giving the law to them. As a covenant of works, we are talking about the principle of works, or I think the more common way of putting it among evangelicals today is the works principle. Or works righteousness, which says do this and live. Or, or if, you, if, if you fail, if you sin, then you die. That's it. That was the covenant that Adam was under, our father in the garden. Adam was under a covenant of works. God sought obedience from Adam as his due. With the promise that such obedience would be rewarded with eternal life, symbolized in the tree of life. But with the threat that on the day that he sins, at the moment he sins, he shall surely die, stated in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. And so the covenant of works says this, do this and live the promise of eternal life, whereas on the other side, it threatens death to the transgressor upon the first transgression. And cursed is everyone who does not do all that is written in the book of the law. And as Adam fell in this estate... He did not succeed, but he fell. He did not do this and live, but he he sinned and so he died. And as he fell and all mankind with him, I have Romans chapter five, verse 12 now in mind. All mankind, along with Adam, remains in a state of sin and misery and death to this day. That's the only explanation for prevalence of sin, the prevalence of death. It's the sin of Adam as he was under a covenant of works. What am I saying? I am saying that the covenant of works, though it was broken by Adam, remains in force to this day. You see, he broke it, but he did not annul it. Never think that. The effects of the covenant of works stand, or the effect of it, the force of it. 
And every man who is an Adam to this day is under, or he is in the covenant of works. He is under its curse. He is condemned. He will surely die. That's the reason all die. Because in Adam all sinned. All in him are under a covenant of works. The covenant of works remains in force to this day. For now let us see that the covenant of works was published anew at Sinai. Having seen what it is. That is to say the principle of works was brought to bear upon their souls. And their consciences there. Moses was preaching the law to them. He was telling them there of their uh, there of the righteousness which is of the law, which says do this and live, which you can find in Leviticus eighteen five. That not only includes, let me say again, life promise for obedience, but curses. Uh, it includes curses threatened for disobedience. Deuteronomy twenty seven verse twenty six, which I quoted earlier. But as Fisher says in the Marrow, God republished the same principle, that is the principle of works given to Adam in the garden or the covenant of works. But he did so for a different purpose, the same principle, but for a different purpose, not to Israel as a way of life. It was so for Adam. For as Paul says in Galatians 3.21 For if. There had been a law given which could have given life. Truly righteousness would have been by the law. But it was not so, Paul is saying. Not as a way of life. No, rather, he says, chapter 3, verse 19 of Galatians, it was added, not as a way of life, but because of transgressions. To be unto them a schoolmaster, to show them their true need, and lead them on to Christ, verse 24. On the face of it, the covenant of works as preached by Moses, seemed to contradict and to undo the promise made to Abraham. For the law is not of faith, Paul says, Galatians 3.12. But the reality, as he explains in that chapter, is that it served and furthered its ends. It was a help to Israel. Not as though to say, you shall find life by the law, but rather as though to say, Galatians 4.21, which I read earlier, you who would be under the law, do you listen to the law? Do you know what it says? You who seek life by the law, do you listen to its commands and its threatenings? Well, hear them again. You remember what uh, the Apostle Paul says to a similar uh, end in Romans chapter 2 to the Jews. Oh, if you had listened to this tutor, Paul says. You would have seen not your liberty, but your bondage, your bondage to sin, your bondage to the law. For it was given anew, as Thomas Boston says in his notes, for humbling and for conviction, not for life, but for humbling and conviction. And thus the order of the covenants that we find in the Bible are as follows, or at least the principles of law and of grace uh, happen in four stages. There is the law which was given to, Abra- to, to Adam, excuse me, and then the, gra- the gracious principle found in the promises made to him and to Abraham. But then there was an intervening period between the promise and the fulfillment where the law was published anew at Sinai through Moses. And following that, fourthly, grace was realized abundantly. The promise given to Abraham was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And so you find law, grace, law, grace. It's, it's number three, that intervening period of law that 
uh, admittedly is perplexing and demands an explanation. Paul himself does not deny its perplexing nature. He says, why was it added? Why was it given? Doesn't it seem as though this principle serves to annul the promise given to Abraham, which was one of pure grace, all grace, free grace? Why add this element? And the answer is because man becomes secure and he forgets his lost estate. He thinks he's righteous when he is not. That's what happened to Israel in Egypt. They forgot they were an Adam. They forgot they were fallen. They forgot they were unrighteous. And so God republishes the law at Sinai as given to Adam under the same conditions, that is, promises and threats, in order that in this way she might see her true need and her bondage. And in truth, every sinner must pass through this stage. He needs the law preached to him. For if he's not in Christ, this is true of every man, if he's not in truth, that in Christ... Then he's in Adam still. And the covenant of works is the covenant he is under. Which means that he's under its obligations. He's under its threats. He's under its curse. And so what do you need to do with such a man who's become secure and he's forgotten who he is and where he stands? You must publish it to him anew as Moses did to Israel. Let him see his true state, one of bondage, in order that he might cry out for grace And appeal to the promise, as Boston says, and so do his ministers preach the law to the unconverted still. That is, as Moses did to Israel at Sinai. And so we see that Sinai was, in fact, two covenants published side by side or mixed together. You say, Pastor, do you mean that Sinai was the covenant of works only? No, I don't. I've already said that the old covenant was a gracious covenant and it was the, it was so primarily. And remember what I said, two things can be true at the same time. Here were two covenants published side by side, mixed together. And let me just say you have to read Fisher and you have to read Boston to really get this point. I don't know that I've ever seen it stated so well, but let me try to summarize it as, as best I can. The covenant of grace and the covenant of works were published together. They were mixed together at Sinai. And it's this thought ultimately that unlocks the mystery to us. We don't find one there, but we find both. You see, when I said that we find the gracious covenant in the old covenant, which I've been saying so much from this pulpit, I'm not denying that you also find the covenant of works there. And that's what I'm adding to the picture here. But in saying, as I have been this morning, that you find the covenant of works there, I am not denying that you find at the same time the covenant of grace there. And so Thomas Boston says this. The covenant of grace was delivered to the Israelites on Mount Sinai contained in the preface to be believed and embraced by faith, that they might be saved to which were annexed the Ten Commandments given by the mediator Christ as a rule of life to his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. That's the Lord speaking graciously to his people. And they, the true spiritual seed of Abraham, believing in that, hear, uh, hear a gracious covenant. And to that gracious covenant are annexed the Ten Commandments as a way of life. That is a way to be lived. But he adds, Thomas Boston, the covenant of works made with Adam contained in the same Ten Commands delivered with thunderings and lightnings describing the righteousness of the law and the sanction thereof to be obeyed. A promise to be believed 
commands to be obeyed. There's the contrast. And these two standing side by side, published together to the elect, the true spiritual seed of Abraham. It was a gracious covenant to be believed. But to those who outwardly professed along with the elect and were externally united to the spiritual seed as being of the house of Israel, the church as it was in those days, and yet who still lacked faith and remained therefore in Adam's, it was unto them a republishing of the covenant of works, even as it was given to Adam in the garden. Paul himself seems to suggest this when he speaks of two covenants in Galatians chapter 4, verse 24, especially speaking of Sinai, that is the giving of the law, as the covenant of bondage. And so it was to those who lacked faith in those days, for rather than promoting life, it only increased their bondage, even as it does to this day, Paul says. But as these two were made to stand together side by side, there is no question as to which was the greater and as to which served the other. The law was added to serve the promise, not as though to annul it, but to serve it. Yes, but it was added, added as something that was not the same, but different. Not the same principle, but a different principle, a different covenant. Not as though to annul the covenant made with Abraham, but as to make its terms and its nature clearer to the one who has faith or to the one who does not to underscore his need for faith. Again, as Boston says, and so do his ministers preach the law to unconverted sinners still. The law is a schoolmaster to lead us on to Christ. To lead us out from the covenant of works and under the covenant of grace. The last point concerns verse 4. The sense in which Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is true in the sense that Christ himself was born under the law. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. You notice how often I'm quoting Galatians here. So that as the law was given to Adam as a way of life, and as the same principle was later stated to Israel at Sinai, so it was given to Christ. Or rather, he made himself under it, under its terms and limitations. And so he fulfilled it completely, both in its negative aspects, its threat of punishment, death and curse. And in its positive precepts, do this unto, uh, do this and live. That's what it said unto Christ. The law said unto Christ as he made himself under it, do this and live and the tree of life will be granted unto you and to all who are yours. And so he promises us in Revelation. And so too did it say unto him as he came under it with its threats, its penalty, its curse. The soul that sins shall surely die. And having borne our sins, so he bore our penalty in full. Yes, and he did all. All that the law commanded of him being made under it, fully absorbing its penalty in his person, fully obeying its every command. And thus we are to understand his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection. It was all in order, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that by the obedience of the one man, that is an obedience to the covenant of works, the many should be justified and brought under the covenant of grace so that they might live. 
And thus we are to understand the sense in which Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is, by obeying it for us, the law, the covenant of works, he brings it to an end for us so that we're no longer under the covenant of works. Its threats can no more alarm us or terrify us or condemn us. The law says unto the sinner, the soul that sins shall die. To which the sinner replies, who believes, yes, but Christ has died. Yes, rather, he has lived for me. And so I with him shall live. He brings it to an end for us. He brings us out from under it. But he also, let us see, brings that covenant to its promised end. Namely, that of life. He realizes the goal that Adam failed to realize. And that is the promise of life under a covenant of life. Not just on the day that you do this sin, you shall surely die. But what about on the day that you obey? Well, you'll live. Christ realized the life which was promised in the covenant of works to Adam's by his obedience. Not only that, but righteousness. He's the end of the law for righteousness in the sense that the righteousness envisioned in the law or the obedience envisioned in the law was achieved by him in his obedience. And further, he is so. He is the end of the law for righteousness, for life to everyone who believes in that God justifies the one who has faith on the basis of. Of his obedience and his obedience alone. Not on the basis of your obedience. That is to bring yourself back under the covenant of works. But to say that I am justified solely on the basis of his obedience. For me. Under the covenant of works is to speak of the covenant of grace. Righteousness and life given as a free gift. Oh the gift isn't like Uh, The transgression, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. This is a free gift that God offers unto sinners. And everyone who believes in him, everyone, enjoys this blessing. To him, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He is no longer in Adam suffering the penalty, but he is in Christ enjoying the blessing. Rather than... Access to the tree of life being denied to Adam and all who are his. Christ promises to the church that he will grant unto them access to the tree of life in Revelation chapter 2. That is his promise to the church. Let me just say that this is what makes the gospel such good news to sinners who know that they cannot be saved by their works. No, never. They know that they are sinners. They are not like the Jews boasting in their righteousness or, or, or the Greeks and the philosophers. And we are able to see, this is where the doctrine of the covenants comes in, and this is the story of the whole Bible, that where we have fallen in God's sight under a covenant of works, and we lie in a state of ruin and condemnation and sin and misery and death, and there is no way for us to dig ourselves out of that. God has made us upright once more in his son under a covenant of grace. Thank God that alongside the covenant of works, he has published the covenant of grace to the true seed of Abraham. Thank God that through Christ's obedience to the covenant of works, which remains in force, he has brought us out from under it 
and into another covenant. And let every sinner hear the gospel then like this. As good news for him, to quote Boston one final time, by looking at the covenant of works, men might see what kind of righteousness it is by which they can be justified in the sight of God. And that by means thereof, finding themselves destitute of that righteousness, they might be moved to embrace the covenant of grace in which that righteousness is held forth to be received by faith. Even the righteousness of faith that the Apostle Paul speaks of and that we have been considering ever since verse 6 in Romans chapter 10. That is, namely, to use the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's the gospel of justification by faith alone. And here is good news for every guilty sinner in Adam. Let him hear it and receive it gladly by faith. Amen. And let us come to the table.